BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Bustle Huddle. I'm your host, Jada Gomez. And today we're back with another one-on-one conversation. And I'm so happy that we have our books editor, Christina Ariola, with me on the pod. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Yes. And I'm really thrilled about who we're hearing from this week. Yeah, this is a really, really exciting conversation, especially considering that the midterm elections are tomorrow. So I actually had a one-on-one conversation with Rebecca Traster who is the author of All the Single Ladies and most recently Good and Mad. Um, And so we talked about this new book, Good and Mad, which just came out a couple of weeks ago. It actually came out the Tuesday after Dr. Christine Blasey Ford's testimony in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee. Hmm. And it is all about the political power Um, and ramifications of women's anger. And so it's a really fascinating, really powerful conversation. Rebecca Traster is my go-to when something happens. I want to see what she's writing about it. I want to see what she's talking about on Twitter. And so to have her here to really just give us some context for this current political movement was really, really enlightening. And I think that our listeners are going to find it also really, really empowering. And it's really going to make them want to get out there tomorrow and really make their anger heard at the ballot box, on social media, in the voicemail inboxes of their representatives. Um, It really is the time to get angry and to get loud about it. And I think that she's really going to demonstrate why. Absolutely. And that's the best part about Rebecca Traster's work is that she actually empowers us and lets us know that it's really okay to be angry and to express that, which isn't something that women are traditionally encouraged to do. How did it make you feel reading this book so close to election day? Well, one of the things about Rebecca Traster's work, um, it isn't so much about anger in terms of interpersonal relationships or even really psychologically or emotionally, it really is about the history of women's anger as a political force. And so I think it would be a little disingenuous to say that it's always a good thing because it isn't. Women's anger is treated differently than men's anger in every situation. And so kind of like considering that and reading this book while preparing for the midterm elections. And also, I actually read this book while watching the Kavanaugh hearings. And so it was it was a very disorienting, unsettling experience in a really in a good way. Um, And I, I know that seems weird, but it really just was the book that I needed to contextualize what was happening in our current political movement because she does go so much into the history of how this situation was made. In fact, we found this conversation so powerful that we decided to really leave it almost entirely unedited. Um, So you are going to hear almost all of the conversation from beginning to end. And I think that you're going to find that what she has to say is really, really powerful and that you're really going to be charged for these midterm elections tomorrow. I'm already charged to pick up this book because I am feeling a lot of unrest. I mean, ever since this election went the way that we didn't want it to go, it's really hard to not feel some sort of rage. So I'm really happy that Rebecca has created a space for us. So without further ado, let's get into that interview. 
So I actually read Good and Mad the week of the Kavanaugh hearings, mm. which was sort of like the best and worst yeah. time to be reading it, I think. I think that I would have really fallen into a lot more despair if I hadn't been reading this. What was your reaction when you realized that this book was going to come out three days after Dr. Christine Blasey Ford's testimony? Well, I don't think I fully absorbed what it was going to mean, because in part, I have to say that you know, I wrote the book quickly and I finished, I handed in a draft on June 1st, 2018. And in the weeks after I handed it in, but when I knew it wasn't going to be out until the fall, it was the women protesting the family separation policy. And do you remember how intense that was? I mean, it's so yeah. funny because things pass us by and then we sort of cover them up in our heads. But that period where people were interrupting the dinners of politicians and Maxine Waters, you know, was sort of encouraging them. And then she was rebuked by, by Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi. And it felt like the rage in that moment was so explosive. And I'd written about Maxine Waters in my book. And I remember thinking then, like, oh, my God, if only my book were coming out right now. And there had been a series of those things over the course of the summer where I'd been like, oh, my God, this would be the perfect time for my book to come out. And in fact, when the Kavanaugh, when the first round of Kavanaugh hearings had happened in September, before it was clear that there was anybody making an allegation against him, and there were protesters standing up and shouting about abortion and about life and death and health care. And I was like, oh, my God, this is partly what my book is about. My book's not out for another three or four weeks or something. So there had been all these moments where I'd felt if only my book were coming out. And so the fact that it was coming out at a moment at which there was something explosive happening, and of course it wasn't clear exactly. I was doing some pre-publicity on the days of the testimony. And I, I couldn't wrap my head around how on the nose it was, because so much of what happened during those hearings and in their aftermath was about women's anger and the, the limits put on it when it came to the testimony of Dr. Blasey Ford, and then of its communicative power, like when it came to the Ana Maria Archila and Maria Gallagher, the women yelling at Jeff Flake in the elevator, and how that went viral and was so meaningful, I think, to so many millions of women. I just couldn't. I was like, oh, I wrote a book about this. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, it was a perfect moment in some ways and also the worst moment in some ways. But I would also say that there's been so much in the past two years that has been about the power and the limits put on women's anger. Yeah, it almost feels like I would be asking that question no matter when it came out. Um, right. I feel like, well, this was clearly the peak. And then there's yeah. part of me that's like, hey, just wait. <laughs> just give it another month. Hold my beer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And sort of like in those moments when it is just so overwhelming and it's hard to process what's going on. And then people turn to you as sort of this expert on women's rage. And do you feel... I guess, a phenomenal pressure to yes. sort of like process your feelings and I, figure out how you feel and how this ties into the history of women's anger. To some extent, it does feel like pressure. The biggest pressure is people who desperately want me or anyone to tell them it's going to be okay, which, of course, is the thing that I and no one can say with any authority. That's part of, in fact, the message of the book is it's probably not going to be okay. And, you know, we have to let ourselves feel <laughs> and work to hear the anger about the fact that it's not okay and let that anger push us forward. But I do feel lucky to the to, for another function that I feel like I am better able to perform for people who are 
anxious and lost and angry and don't know what to do with all the things they're feeling. I feel very lucky because this work has permitted me in advance of this tumultuous time and in the midst of it to make sense of a lot of what people are feeling. Like I... And, and I think that can be helpful, too. And I can offer that with a, like, you know, in good faith. I can, I can say, listen, this thing that you're feeling is politically consequential. The things that it's driving you to do, whether that's run for office or be part of a strike or knock doors or register voters or hold up a sign and scream in the Senate judiciary or confront a powerful man in an elevator— or tell your story of harassment or assault. Those things are going to have consequence. It's meaningful. It's not just you acting in some way that culture is going to tell you is marginal or hysterical or threatening or weird. Like, you're part of, in fact, a larger movement happening now. And also, in being part of that larger movement, your anger is motivating you to civic engagement and energy in a way that has precedent throughout American history, but about which we haven't been taught. And so that I feel lucky that I'm in a position to be like, hang on, guys, I can sort of like help put together a puzzle so that this doesn't feel like you're so out at sea. Because one of the most dangerous and pernicious things about the way that women's anger is treated and marginalized and discouraged in this country is that it leaves so many millions of women feeling isolated and crazy and like, you know, because there's no acknowledgement of the validity of the anger or of its consequence or of its potential or of its place within the history of transformative political and social movements that you just feel like, ah, I'm so angry and my doctor's telling me it's giving me high blood pressure and my partner's telling me it's making me kind of annoying and, you know, and all around me are images that tell me that it's making me ugly. But in fact, like, I feel very lucky that I'm in a position to say, no, hang on. <laughs> that anger is a crucial part of your participation in this democracy. So for me, in my reading of Good and Mad, um, I was really struck by how you, I think maybe in like the first four pages, you talk about Anita Hill mm. and you talk about how that is definitely not a win for women, but it led to an unprecedented number of women running for Congress, mm -hmm. including the woman who was eventually, I think, the first African-American woman mm -hmm. in the Senate. Yeah, Carol Mosley Brown from um, Illinois. And you mentioned that again at the end where you kind of talk about these women who, you know, were made to be victims of men and maybe didn't come out as victors in those situations but eventually led to other women achieving successes in those fields. I wonder, was that intentional to kind of like have that framework of even though it isn't, I mean, you say that you're, you're not going to tell us that it's going to be OK, but it does sort of seem hopeful to have that I am framed hopeful. in that way. I, I, I do have hope. And it's I, I guess I didn't think about the fact that it was framed that way beginning and end. Um, but it's certainly a theme that I have returned to again and again. It's funny that you noted that in the first four pages I'm writing about Anita Hill. Anita Hill was like her testimony. And maybe it's just because of my age. I was in high school when she testified against Clarence Thomas and it made a huge impression on me. But I didn't quite know what that impression was or what it meant. And I wasn't so politically attuned as a high school student that I was like, yes, the year of the woman. Like, I, I yeah. kind of remember <laughs> it, but like not that clearly. Right. I was no like feminist savant as a, you know, as a junior in, in high school. But as I've grown and become a feminist journalist, which I've now been doing like for uh, almost 15 years, I really have come to regard Anita Hill's testimony as a huge turning point in contemporary feminism. And acknowledging the exactly what you're saying, this kind of bifurcated result. Because 
a lot of what women are angry about from a progressive perspective, and of course there's also women's anger on behalf of the power structure, right, coming from the right. But when you talk about progressive, the anger of progressive women who are fundamentally fighting to alter that power structure and the people and and to include the people who it's historically excluded or marginalized, a lot of what the anger is about is about this unjust distribution of power. And what that means in lived terms is that the people who have power have enough power to railroad you, right? They have so much power that they can just confirm their nominees, right? No matter how much mass sentiment, no matter how much evidence, how much careful and credible testimony you have on your side, if the point is that they have this grip on power, then they have the ability to exercise that power over you. And that's part of what we're angry at to begin with, right, throughout our history, is the fact that the people who can make the laws can make them in such a way that they exclude voters, that they outlaw abortion or birth control or gay marriage, that they can do those things. And that's what mass anger is often in response to. And so something like the Anita Hill hearings, and we hear the echo, and of course we're living with the echo, of it in the wake of the Kavanaugh confirmation, is a story of power's ability to overrun resistance to it in action, right? Clarence Thomas is confirmed to the Supreme Court, despite the history-making, deeply moving, 100% credible testimony of Anita Hill. And that's no small loss, because in his position on the Supreme Court, Clarence Thomas has been part of decisions that paved the way for Donald Trump. Citizens United, the gutting of the Voting Rights Act, his power that was given to him via that confirmation over Anita Hill's objections has shaped political future, has gotten us to here. That's bad. But at the same time, that abuse of the power made visible to so many people the whiteness, the maleness, the derision with which they treated this person. It made people hear a story of sexual harassment and understood what it meant as a, as a form of structural inequity. It made masses of Americans smarter and angrier and more determined to challenge that unequal distribution of power than ever before. And that has had long-term effects at the same time that his confirmation has had long-term effects. And I, I think and hope that 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 is a future that we're looking at when it comes to Kavanaugh. Kavanaugh has been confirmed. It's hard to really express the degree to which his confirmation is likely to reshape our lives. You know, and it's, it is, it's the right to get an abortion. It is voting rights. It's collective bargaining rights. It is access to birth control. We, we forget that birth control was only legalized in this country by the Supreme Court for single people in the early 70s. I mean, this is a recent decision that we could legally access birth control. There's so much on the table, and a Kavanaugh court is going to be able to do so much damage. That's a real loss long, with long-term consequences. But it is also true that the anger that millions of women feel and the numbers are more on our side this time, right? More people believe Christine Blasey Ford than believed Anita Hill in the immediate aftermath of the testimony. So I have to believe that there's a long-term reason to hope that what has been made visible, the connections between sort of policy and legal investments in overturning Roe or whatever the equivalent will be, in gutting voting rights, and the disregard for women and their stories and their bodily autonomy that was shown not just by Brett Kavanaugh, but by members of his party who pushed him through over the objections and the carefully voiced dissent of women, 
that making that visible is going to have long-term a long-term impact in terms of the reaction of the masses over the next three decades, four decades, five decades, as long as Brett Kavanaugh is going to sit on the court and I hope beyond. I, I think one of the reasons that it struck me that you mentioned Need Hill so quickly is because, I mean, I was maybe not born when they needed. What year were you born? I was born 1991. You were, that was the year you were born. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, for me, it's like, yes, I, I, you know, I'd write about it in some respects. Mm -hmm. um, But, you know, history isn't traditionally very good about giving you that side of the story. And so this was really the first time while also, you know, watching the Kavanaugh hearings that I was really digesting what had happened to Anita Hill in a critical way. Have you gone back and watched any of her testimony? I haven't. You should watch Watch the documentary that was made about her. It's called Anita. It was it was released on the 25th anniversary, so it was 2016, I guess, that they released this documentary called Anita. You should watch the way that they treated her and how she testified, and it was it's an incredible. Moment. I'll definitely have to watch that. But yeah, I do feel like that is you know the case with me and a lot of the people of my age is that we are sort of aware of it, but mm-hmm. hadn't really realized what had happened until we saw what happened to Dr. Ford. And so kind of thinking about what could happen is terrifying. But having it in that context of, well, let's think about what women did in response to that, I find helpful. The story that I filed on November 8th before I went to the Javits Center in 2016, and I was going to the Javits Center to cover election night with the Clinton campaign. I had written about Hillary Clinton a lot throughout 2016. I'd covered her campaign. I'd profiled her. And they, of course, like you had to file stories before you left, like so that there could be a story, you know, that would be in the works. Um, And I was very nervous that she wouldn't win, but I had to file a story sort of as if she had one. And the story I'd been working on and reporting for weeks before that had been about the history of how did we get to the point where a woman could become elected president, which has been an unthinkable possibility in this country throughout its history. That story was about Anita Hill. So... Anita Hill has loomed so large. The story of those hearings has been in my first book, which is about the 2008 election. My second book, which is about unmarried women, in part because Anita, she talked to me for that book about how part of what had made her incomprehensible to a Senate Judiciary Committee was the fact that she was unmarried and therefore sort of uncategorizable by these white guys. And she was, it was those hearings. And there's a real structural reason. One of one of the people I'd gone back to, Ellen Malcolm, who'd founded Emily's List, which is the the PAC that supports um, pro-choice women in democratic politics. Emily's List had been founded in 1984, but it boomed in the wake of the Anita Hill hearings. Part of the reason that you get to the year of the woman in 1992 is because suddenly money pours in from wealthy donors who suddenly want to see women candidates. Like that kind of structural thing, we don't even think, it's not even just that Anita Hill testifies, you see the whiteness and maleness of the Senate judiciary, and then all these women run for office. You also need the fundraising. You need the networks. You need the parties. And so she was catalytic. And the anger at how she was treated was catalytic in that regard, too. It, it made Emily's list. You know, I'd talked to Ellen Malcolm, the founder, like the weekend before the 2016 election, where she'd remembered that weekend after the Hill hearings, suddenly her phone's ringing off the hook with donors who want to give money to her organizations because they want to see more women in positions of power. And those are the kinds of things that are long-term. Look, the growth of Emily's List is now one of the most powerful PACs in Washington. The ways that this branches off and makes an impact 
impact in terms of fundraising, in terms of money, in terms of activism, protest, organization, the way we think about the government, about capitalism, all this stuff is happening all around us. And it, it sometimes takes a long view for us to be able to make sense of it and tell it as a story because so much of it is the confusion in which we're living in right now. 1992, the year of the woman, do you think that maybe in the future we'll classify 2017 and 2018 as year of the women? Yeah, I hope it doesn't. I hope it's not just a year of the woman. I hope it's, it's like I hope it's a broader yeah. turning point. <laughs> I hope that <laughs> because one of the depressing. By the way, this is an important addendum to this. After 1992, when the, by the way, the year of the woman, four women are elected to the Senate. That's a great history-making election year. Four women in a Senate, and something like 23 women in the House. And after 1992, there were a whole bunch of groups that started thinking, like, now we're going to elect women. And in fact, the numbers went way down after that. It was a year. So it is my hope that when we look at this period, it won't just be about, oh, yeah, remember that one year we elected a bunch of women? First of all, I hope we elect a bunch of women, which is we don't know what's going to happen. And the impact of voter suppression and enormous money coming in from the Koch brothers, you know, there are all kinds of factors that we just can't account for right now. The calls to like open racism and misogyny, which are very powerful in this country. You know, we don't know what's going to happen. But if we do wind up electing a lot of women, what I hope is that we'll look at it as a turning point in which we actually get closer to representative government in the long term, and that it's not just an aberration, that actually the activation and energy of these past two years will fundamentally alter the relationship between women and their representative government. I want to talk about one of the sections of the book that has just haunted me since I read it, which is in a portion where you're talking about how women are not only often the victims of these things that men do, but they also have to, as you put it, foot the bill for men's Mm -hmm. bad acts. Yes. And you mentioned how there was a Senate staffer who told you that many of the Democratic women were in the bathrooms, like talking about like how they didn't know how to deal with this and how they felt it was regarding really Al fair, Franken. regarding Al Franken, mm-hmm. about how they felt that it was really fair and frustrating and it put them all in a bad position. And that to me is just it's just so haunting mm-hmm. that not only are we the victims of the crimes, but also the ones who, you know, have to be put in this position of answering for them. Absolutely. I wonder, you know. What is your takeaway on that for women in politics? Like, how can they respond to these, you know, polls in both directions? Well, one of the answers is to equalize power, which is you can't do with a snap of the fingers, right? This is a long process. That's part of what we're doing. But as long as men and in particular white men remain the center and the centrifugal force in politics and public life, um, you know, when it comes to economic and sexual and social power, then we're all just sort of reflections on their status, right? And they, as long as they have the imaginative pull of, like, the normative human being, then they're the basis from which we start. And as long as we're dependent on them as our, you know, not just in some cases personally, right, as our partners or our family members, in some cases economically as our bosses or breadwinners, as our party leaders, right? As long as white men have a disproportionate share of power, we depend on them ideologically. Al Franken's a great example of that. He's a terrific senator. He's a good feminist. I really like Al Franken. Like, I wish he hadn't grabbed women's asses, you know? Yeah. (laughs) Um, But... If you think about those women and the position that they were put in by that, right, you know, it wasn't just one allegation. It was multiple allegations dripping out every day. Again, it's not just about the damage being done to the women whose asses were grabbed. 
It's about the damage being done to his colleagues. First of all, it's women who are on the committees about sexual harassment and assault, right? I wish some of those guys were on those committees doing the work addressing the pervasive assault and harassment in the military or on college campuses. But very often it's the women who are doing that work on those committees. So one of their colleagues is accused of harassment. He's not resigning. He's not taking a leave. And they're the ones who are getting asked. It's their work that's being undermined and their ideological opponents who are like, well, you must not really be committed to eradicating harassment since you're not condemning your own colleague. Now, the fact is, if they had not called for his resignation, if they had continued to just let him do the ethics investigation, they would be called hypocrites for the rest of their careers. Their work and commitment to those issues would be deeply undermined. Look at what would have, I mean, what would have happened. He sat on the Senate Judiciary Committee. Yeah. Here's the thing about Anita Hill. One of the reasons that nobody on the, uh, on the Democratic side of that ju- Senate Judiciary Committee stood up for her or treated her well was because the most liberal guy, the liberal lion of the Senate, was Ted Kennedy. And Ted Kennedy had a terrible history, including having left a woman to die in Chappaquiddick. And his nephew was being tried at the exact same time as the Anita Hill hearings for rape in Palm Beach. And so he couldn't open his mouth when it came to issues of sexual harassment because of his own history. So imagine that Franken had been sitting on that Judiciary Committee for Christine Blasey Ford's testimony. He would have been another Ted Kennedy, a great liberal man who was in no position to advocate for women because he was susceptible to charges of hypocrisy. It would have weakened his party's position in a crucial moment, as the allegations did in that moment when Roy Moore was running for Alabama Senate and he was a multiply accused sexual predator. And the Republicans were treating Franken's, in some ways, incomparable case, right, as a reason to say, well, you won't condemn people in your own party, so why shouldn't we support this guy in our party? It was doing damage to the Democrats' prospects in the Senate. And so if those women hadn't called for his resignation— They would have paid for that, too. As it was, they called for his resignation. And you now have major donors who say they'll never support Kirsten Gillibrand for president. She's a terrific politician. I damn well hope she runs for president. But she's going to have a really hard time getting the support of her party because she has been framed as the executioner of beloved Al Franken. So women are left with crappy choices. You can either be the judge and the police and then you're cast as the bad guy and the opportunist, or you can, you know, defend your colleague and then your, your, your own work is undercut and your reputation and your commitment to issues like this is undercut. It's a terrible set of choices laid out for women. It's completely infuriating. And I'm skipping around a bit because there's a lot to unpack in your book. But I felt just so angry at the sections about where you kind of laid out all of these men in media who had been accused of sexual harassment, who had been sort of like the people who were leading the charge on Hillary Clinton. Mm -hmm. And it was just one of those cases where it was like Hillary Clinton who had to navigate so many things so perfectly and so precisely and then still came under the judgment of media men who were sexually harassing other women and who clearly had a problem. Yeah, And it just is like no matter how perfectly you navigate that line, you still are at the mercy of these bad men. Right. And the fact that your imperfections, because she didn't always navigate perfectly, and she has, and she, 
has made errors, but that those errors come in to stand for her whole career, whereas the fact that these guys, that Charlie Rose, for example, can be accused by more than 35 women who used to work for him of really grotesque, aggressive, predatory sexual behavior toward young women who worked for him, and he can still, like, while I was writing this book, like, you know, he butt-tweeted or something, and, like, you saw on Twitter thousands of people, we miss you, Charlie, we miss you. Like, you can look past the bad and often violent acts of powerful white men who we have been taught to view as brilliant and human and trusted to see their their genius and their value in the world. And it's like the exact opposite of how a woman who screws up in one direction or another, that screw up comes to stand in for and blot out whatever value she might bring to her profession or to politics or to public life. Yeah, I think that, I think that was the section. It's a really funny section of the book where you're talking about the witch hunt and you kind of like lay out like all the things that like men said being dramatic, like their abrupt demise, like the witch they were hunt. They constantly like, compared to having you know, their been life killed. is over. Yes. And you were like, none of them, they're fine. They're they fine. lost their job. They're not dead. It's going to be fine. They're okay. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Some of them are making comebacks. <laughs> They're going to be fine. They're going to be fine. And that's, you know, and, and the thing is, again, that's the disproportionate amount of humanity we can afford them that we can feel for their humiliation and their, oh, their careers, but they're not going to have their power anymore. It's like how Brett Kavanaugh can be viewed as having been the victim because somebody tried to delay or halt his further accrual of power, right? Nobody was even talking about him losing the judgeship he had now. It was like, should you get a promotion? And the idea that anybody would object to that was like an attack that's being framed by the right as an attack on Brett Kavanaugh. Really, what happened is women told stories. They weren't, the women weren't in the position to like fire them or tax them or <laughs> hurt them. It was like the women were just telling stories of what had happened in their lives. But the reflexive impulse to understand the experience of a powerful man who's had his power challenged or interrupted as being the one that's worthy of our sympathy and understanding, like, it must be hard to be that guy whose reputation is suddenly in tatters, right? And But we don't—because we're not presented with women as similarly fully human— because they haven't had the kind of power to become the voices in our ears and the interpreters of our politics and our stories and our culture. We don't reflexively afford them that same kind of imagined sympathy or empathy. They're nameless. The women, the you know, for all the allegations of like these women just wanted their 15 minutes of fame, how many of the women, except for the ones who are already famous actresses who accused Harvey Weinstein, how many of the women who accused Charlie Rose, for instance, or Mario Batali, or, you know, or Tom Brokaw, which was minor. Like, how many of those women's names do we know? How many of them can we imagine as human? How many of them have we taken the time to think about the way that their experiences of harassment or assault derailed their dreams long before they ever gained anything like the power that was enjoyed by these men, many of them over decades, as they were remunerated millions of dollars? We don't afford the women whose careers were derailed by the harassment and assault far earlier, any of that kind of sympathy, like what what th their lives must have been like, their trajectories were changed, their reputations damaged within their industry. And yet all of that kind of 
sympathy. This is what the philosopher Kate Mann refers to as empathy, right? It it draws our eye and our emotional investment because those are the people we recognize as fully human and with whom we have been trained to identify. You've been writing about feminist issues now for 15 years. Do you think that you were always this angry or has it been sort of like a growing process for you in your writing, in your reading, in the world as it is? I think that there are two answers to that. I think that I have gotten angrier because, and I think that's a frequent experience. There's an old saying from like 1970s feminism that somebody told me once that was like, life makes you a feminist. And I think that's especially true in a post-second wave world in which women are brought up with the sense that like all kinds of doors are going to be open for them and equality is possible and they're valued in ways that women of previous generations perhaps were not from from childhood. And then as you get older and you sort of get data points, right? Maybe it's you recognize how much you're being paid compared to how much your male colleagues or peers are being paid. Maybe it's your lived experience of harassment or assault, you know, as a, as a teenager, as a grown woman. Maybe it's the kind of realities of medical care and how hard it is to access birth control or abortion, to get fair wages, the lack of paid leave and paid child care. Like as you get older and you begin to accumulate data points of the ways in which discrimination works itself out in terms of policy and practice and in human relationships, you get a sense of inequity. And so you do get angrier. So that that's part of it. But I also think that when I was a younger woman, the messages that any expression of my anger would invalidate my point, I deeply absorbed those messages. And so even as a young feminist writer, when obviously anger at inequity was motivating my work, right, there was no way I would have been writing about gender inequity and racial inequity and and economic inequality had I not been angry about them. So anger was there, but I took great care to obscure it because I knew it would make it harder for people to listen to me if I were writing out of anger. And so I think that's changed my willingness to be angry. But in part, that's changed because I've gained power within my industry, right? That makes it easier. And there's no denying that because the costs are less for me than they were when I was a younger person. And that is a really important metric to remember. I don't want to tell anybody out there, go out and be angry like me. I... I'm coming from an extremely privileged point of view in that I now have a job, I have a position, I have a platform where I'm able to be angry and, by the way, profit from it. And and not only that, where at least for some readers, my anger is going to be taken seriously. And that's the thing that I think so many women around the country yearn for is to, to have their anger not written off, not laughed at, not considered hysterical or irrational, but rather having someone listen to it and say, oh my God, she has a point. She's pointing us. Her anger is diagnostic. It's telling us about something that's wrong that needs to be fixed. I have an incredibly privileged perch in that some I'm given in a platform in a magazine and and by being on podcasts and on the radio where there's at least some indication that the people I'm talking to are asking me, why are you angry? What are you angry about? And what does it tell us about what's wrong with America? There are millions of voices that we should be listening to with the same seriousness and curiosity. And that's the thing that the only thing that I think is prescriptive about this book, this is not a book that's directing anybody to like express their anger differently or be madder or be louder or say it this way or use this tone or what. No, it's about how we listen. We have to take the anger of other women around us seriously. I feel like if people had a fraction, got a fraction of the kind of curiosity that people have expressed, even within the past few weeks on this book tour, 
That's so crucial. We need to consider women's anger and more broadly the anger of people who have had less power historically and now. We need to treat their anger as valid and as instructive to us. We need to ask questions about it and then listen to the answers. It just feels like sometimes there's so much to be done. Um, So I grew up in El Paso, which is right Mm. on the border. And I went to a Catholic school and the nuns there have been mobilizing so hard for the migrants. It's just like crazy, like the things that people are doing that you don't even hear about, really. So this is one of the things that actually gives me tremendous hope and I think is often missed by the men who have so much power in the mainstream media. I have found that so many of the women that I've been reporting on, suburban women who've always been inactive and then suddenly have become completely energized and are committing their every waking hour to working on behalf of candidates or forming new organizations to get around voter suppression, like all these creative approaches to left politics, right? The left candidates, the more left, the Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Ayanna Presley, Andrew Gillum, you know, the movement of these, these people into remaking a Democratic party structure, which felt very distant to me, even when Bernie Sanders was running in 2016. It was like, oh, but, you know, we need a party that can support those kinds of policies at the top. And I'm like, OK, so now there are people who are committing, committed to rebuilding that party. They're moving into politics. The kind of protest energy around that we saw with the protesters of Kavanaugh, but they're also doing the get out the vote and registering voters. This stuff is not getting totally absorbed by a mainstream media that keeps looking at polls based on likely voters based on past elections. I'm not saying that that is going to be the answer to what happens, but I also think there's so much in flux in this country that remains invisible to some of the powerful people who are not used to looking in those looking at certain kinds of Americans and how they're participating. Yeah. And I think it's been especially strange for me coming from El Paso, which is also where Beto O'Rourke is from. Yes. And just sort of like, it's just been like such like a crazy place to be politically. Like the, I I mean, Texas, I mean, I I don't know that Beto is going to win, but I've never seen Texas like this before, like come this close to even considering it. And so maybe if it's not this time. Hopefully this and Texas time. is changing. Well, this Texas is the other is changing. Thing. Texas yeah. is changing. Texas did better for Hillary than it had for Obama by a lot, right? And Georgia is changing, and Nevada is changing, and Arizona is changing, and North Carolina is changing. The country is in flux, but a lot of the storytellers—it's a version. You know, you talked earlier about the some of the powerful men who you know helped shape the story of Hillary Clinton. A lot of those powerful men are still telling a story of politics based on a model that was built in another era. And they're not necessarily seeing the ways that masses of people are altering. In fact, that's something the right sees much better than the media because that's what they're reacting against. That's what they're scared of is the change. And I remember when Alexandria won and everyone was like, oh, where did she come from? They were like only Refinery29 and Elite Daily. And it was like, well, maybe it's because it's a bunch of women sitting here. Exactly. That's exactly how it was written off. It was invisible. I write about that in the book with the way that the mainstream press covered the Women's March, which, by the way, was the biggest single day protest in this country's history. history. And yet you couldn't get the morning shows the next morning to treat it as a serious political display. A lot of, there's a lot of work to be done. Yes. <laughs> so what is next? What do you think are the next steps for women in America and channeling this anger? And I guess what's next for you? What are you going to be working on? Um, as far as next steps for women, I mean, I think we're in it, right? Like, yeah. um, you know, I think that there are a lot of people who long to be told like, well, after the midterms, 
once we wrap that up, that's going to be great. And we'll go back to like watching The Real Housewives or whatever. <laughs> that's not. That's not going to happen. That's not going to happen. <laughs> and by the way, that it's, this is really crucial. It's not going to happen win or lose. So Democrats might lose the midterms for any number of reasons, chief among them probably voter suppression, along with a million other factors, the money being poured in from right-wing donors, you know, anger being ginned up amongst women and men on the right by Donald Trump through his openly xenophobic, racist, misogynist calls to fear and fury. You know, Democrats might lose the midterms, and that is going to be terrifying because it's going to cement a Republican ability to further disable the mechanisms that respond to mass dissent and mass movements. Very scary. But the very worst thing that we could do in response to that is to stop fighting, being active, taking legal and and activist and electoral approaches to continuing the fight, right? By the same token, if Democrats win big, that is not the moment to be like, great, fixed it, right? Great, fixed it is the most pernicious lie in this country. It's not fixed. It's going to take the rest of our lives, you know, your life, which is, you know, I've got 17 years on you. It's going to be the rest (laughs) of your life, too. Um, And and we need to settle into that and actually find it kind of inspiring because it puts us in line with generations of people who've come before us who have given their lives and their energies to making the country a better place and many of whom have given lives and energies and been beaten and jailed and killed and perhaps didn't even make it to see the fruits of their fight. Um, didn't even live to see the victories. But in fact, their willingness to give their life to that struggle is what created the victories that then many of us were brought into this world taking for granted and which now we have been reminded we never should have taken for granted. So what's next for women and progressives in America is a continued and lifelong commitment to fighting via all kinds of means. We need to look to the history and we need to be creative about our future in terms of electoral approaches, protest, building coalitions that are stronger and more inclusive than they have been historically, participating and supporting collective bargaining, collective action, reinvigorating a labor movement, um, acknowledging the ways in which racial and economic and gendered inequality are all tied together and need to be fought and uprooted as a mass project that includes so many different people and different perspectives. That's what's ahead of us. What's ahead of me, I have no idea. I mean, (laughs) I think this story of women's anger and dissent in the United States is going to be ongoing for a long time. You know, it's not too long before a presidential election is coming up. And I very much hope and expect that there, for the first time in my life, will be multiple women running on a Democratic side. And it will be part of my job to tell that story of that that history that we're going to be making in one way or another. Um, So that's immediately on the horizon. And more broadly, I'm committed to telling the story of this country in a moment of peril and possibility. Yeah, the work doesn't end. It will not ever end. end. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you for having me. (laughs) This was a very intense conversation. Sorry. Do I I scare people? (laughs) No, no, I loved it. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Thank you. Onward. Onward, yeah. We hope you got just as much out of that powerful conversation as we did. Thank you so much to Christina Ariola and Rebecca Traster for that powerful discourse. We'll be back on Wednesday with another regular episode, but until then, we hope that you get out there and that you vote. 
The Bustle Huddle is produced by Anna Parsons, Julia Shu, and Michaela Heck. Be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. And definitely hit us up with comments. We'd love to hear from you. I'm your host, Jada Gomez, and I will see you next week. When you've had enough, when the crowd gets rough, gotta stand up.